0: This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. On October 4th, 1957, Americans all over the country sat down to watch the premiere of a new show called Leave It to Beaver. While that premiere may have been earth-shaking in its own way, Something else was also happening on that day that might just have been even more shocking to most Americans.
1: Today, a new moon is in the sky, a 23-inch metal sphere placed in orbit by a Russian rocket. Here, an artist's conception of how the feat was accomplished. A three-stage rocket. Number one, the booster in the class of an intercontinental missile. Its weight estimated at 50 tons. The smaller second stage took over at 5,000 miles an hour and carried on to the highest point reached.
0: 500 miles up, The artificial moon is boosted to a speed counterbalancing the pull of gravity and released. Prior to Sputnik, most Americans had just assumed that the U.S. was technologically superior in every way to the USSR. And a satellite just hanging there in orbit seemed to have come from nowhere out of what everyone had assumed was nothing. To one member of Congress, the beeps that Sputnik emitted were an intercontinental outer space raspberry to a decade of American pretensions that the American way of life was a gilt-edged guarantee of our national security. Immediately in the wake of Sputnik 1, the government took steps to catch up with the Soviets, like by founding NASA and by making education in the sciences a national priority. But what had happened in the Soviet Union that made them get there first? A great deal of information about the Soviet space program was, until fairly recently, shrouded in some degree of mystery. That's because the information was in closed Soviet archives. Those archives have been opening over the last few years, and my guest today on Fordham Conversations was one of the first to go inside. Asif Siddiqui is an assistant professor of history at Fordham, and he's been researching the space race for a number of years. Most recently, Siddiqui's been working on unearthing the roots of the Soviet space program. His forthcoming book on the subject is The Red Rocket's Glare, Soviet Imaginations and the Birth of Sputnik from Cambridge Press. He joined me in the studio to talk about what the people of the Soviet Union were thinking about when they thought of space travel. Asif Siddiqui, welcome. Thank you. Now, tell me about the first Sputnik.
1: Well, the first Sputnik uh, was the first Russian satellite, but it was also the world's first satellite. It was launched in 1957, about 50 years ago now. And um, I guess you could say it was sort of a a major break from what came before and what came after, uh, in the sense that for the first time in uh, human history, humanity's handiwork had been thrust and uh, flung into the heavens for the first time. Something that we made had breached the atmosphere and entered space. So it was quite an important event in that sense.
0: And it started the whole space race then.
1: Absolutely, yeah often tell people there was a metaphysical sort of component to it, but there was also a geopolitical component, The metaphysical, spiritual component being, I think, some people see it as part of sort of human evolution, that we must go out into space, and that was the first step. The more geopolitical, practical, and political implication was, of course, the sort of punctuating the Cold War and the space race and the battle of wits, if you will, between uh, the Soviet Union and the United States. Uh, which really began in 1957 and culminates uh, about a decade or so later with the landing of American astronauts on the moon in 1969.
0: Now, you are here today because you are working on this book that's about mm-hmm. the, the Russian space program, mm-hmm. or I guess the, the roots or the origins of the Russian that's space right, program. Yeah. What is the usual story that, that's told about, about space flight in Russia?
1: The story that we've heard throughout perhaps the last 50 years is is really one of, um, it coincides with our, our perceptions and our knowledge of the Soviet communist system in general, in the sense that we think of these sort of grayish people in their grayish apartments or grayish laboratories working in, through their gray lives and building these things under communism. And that's not too far from the truth. There was a lot of hardship under which they had to work. The story really is about, uh, in some sense, a single person, a man named Sergei Pavlovich Karaliov, who was born early in in the 20th century and uh, was an an aviation enthusiast who becomes embroiled in in sort of shenanigans in the 1930s and ends up in the gulag. He is released from the gulag camps uh, during World War II and he rises up through his own ambition and the power the force of his will to create Sputnik and eventually heads the Soviet space program. And then very soon after that, he dies on an operating table because of uh, complications to, from an operation due to cancer. Like many Russian stories, the story has a very sort of great tragic arc to it in the sense of you think of a great noble Russian character who rises and triumphs over adversity and then does some this this amazing thing in his life and then sort of falls at the height of his career and that's really the story we we know and have been told so far. And as i said there's a there's kernels of truth in it of course. It's not too far from what um i have found has happened.
0: So what is the
1: Well the real story is it is a story of one man but is also it's also a story of many other people, both men and women. We love our history to be very simple with great heroes and villains and i think as historians um, go and delve into stories, they they see that uh, history is a little bit, little bit more complex. And uh, in this case there were many forces. For example, one of the characterizations of Karlov is that he was this sort of noble person fighting the Stalinist system and unable to really rise up and Stalin's evil sort of puts him down. But uh, we find out more that he was very much a Stalinist himself and, and despite having spent you know about six years in the gulag, he comes out being even more of a Stalinist after that. So he, he never really sort of lost his faith in the system. He was very, very much a patriot. He was not somebody, uh, despite his difficult life experiences, who was willing to give up on the system. One of the things that we didn't know during the Cold War was the Russian space program was enormously complex, and it was also beset by many things we just didn't know, many sort of dramatic episodes in in the history of the Soviet space program which we could only guess, but because of Soviet secrecy or their urge to only talk about their successes, we actually never learned about their failures. And one of the things I wanted to do with this book was really to give a more fully fleshed out account of the Soviet space program.
0: I have to say in in preparing for this interview, that was the first sort of encounter I'd had with mm-hmm. the roots of the Soviet mm-hmm, space program. Mm-hmm. And One of the things that surprised me, which I guess I never thought about before, is the fact that the Soviet space program did come out of a culture Mm -hmm. that's different from Mm -hmm. what the American space program Mm -hmm. came out of. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the world that Russian space Mm -hmm. exploration Mm -hmm. emerged from.
1: You really have to have a sort of, uh, you really have to delve deep into Russian society of the 20th century, which is the promise of the Russian Revolution of 1917. And you see, you know, this is after almost 900 years of... Imperial and Czarist rule there's a lot of hope in the 1920s in Russian society, but it's also socialist or you know quasi socialist society in some sense and people are living very hard lives by the 1930 s and especially then you run into World War two, which is enormously costly for the for the Soviet Union about over twenty five million uh, s- citizens are lost, which is in more than any other nation in the war so over 1,500 cities are devastated uh, in the war. So unlike the United States, which essentially escaped unscathed, at least in its landmass to the war, Russia was totally destroyed. So the mindset here is really that we have to rebuild our country, uh, at least among the common person. Uh, now, from the top down, from Stalin and his you know buddies and henchmen, it, it's a very different perspective. They're mostly a paranoid group of people who... Have either expansionist aims or just you know they're just power hungry. So, but there is a brief period when both these aims coincide because they're both working in some sense to really uh, rejuvenate the nation. So people lived very hard lives by the by the fifties. You know you had a number of families would share a single apartment, and many of these engineers in the Russian space program have many stories to tell about how difficult their lives were, how cold it was during the winter, how hot it was during the summer, and you know, how the the young people nowadays just don't understand. And that kind of story really is part of their, you know, heritage.
0: I know that the U.S. isn't exactly your purview, but mm-hmm. reading all this about mm-hmm. the Russian sort of space culture, mm-hmm. I was wondering how different it was from what was going on in the U.S. at that time and how similar it was.
1: Yeah, so that's an interesting question. I mean... It, it was similar in the sense that in the 60s, you know, this was before my time, but in the 60s, I, you know, you read books and accounts and people who remember it talk about this sort of great optimism about the American space program. You had Alan Shepard and John Glenn and these sort of astronauts who were made into mythic icons. And the astronaut icon is particularly powerful, I think, for a lot of kids of that generation or, or young or youth. And, of course, you had the Apollo landings on the moon. So all of this was wrapped up, on, I, th- I think, in in some sense, also part of kind of a nationalist project. Also, you know, the space program became kind of a surrogate weapon for America's assertion of power in the world. It was also a point of pride, you know, and, uh, and all these astronauts were sort of clean-cut, sort of blue-eyed, blonde-haired um, men who represented middle America at its best in some sense. So you see the same perils in Russia. Their hero cosmonauts are just held up and kids were collecting every, everything they could get on these cosmonauts uh, who were rushing out and with the hammer and sickle out into outer space. Very, very similar things were happening both sides because I think nationalism played a role in both cases. Uh, of course, there were differences in the sense that the American space program, every time a rocket blew up, it was on TV. You know, It was on all the networks. When a rocket blew up in the Russian space program, you never even heard about it because nothing was broadcast. Only the successes were told about after the fact. So and so all the information we got on the Russian space program was, wow, they're having so many successes. Well, it's because we never knew about the failures. But in America, you sat there and you watched it on TV every, every other night. The rocket would blow up or something. So
0: You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. This is Major Matt Mason, Mattel's man in space, ready for every adventure with all his official equipment. The space station, protected by solar shields. The moon suit, designed for exploration. The space crawler that keeps on going no matter what. Get them together or separately. And share the exciting adventures of Major Matt Mason, Mattel's new man in space. We're doing some outer space exploration today on the show with my guest, Asif Siddiqui. He's an assistant professor of history at Fordham, and he is working on a book about the origins of spaceflight in the Soviet Union. Let's return to our conversation. Tell me about the uh, space fad of the
1: 1930s. Well, this is a very interesting time in Russia, Um, much more so than in the United States for reasons that uh, I hope that I'm being able to find. Russians were obsessed about the cosmos. They were obsessed with space flight, especially in the 1920s. There was a complete explosion of just interest in space flight in the 20s. They were really interested in going to the moon, going to Mars. And of course, this is a time when Russia can't even produce a car, basically. So this was a really odd period. But it's it's got some interesting... Um, a lot of things came out of it. I mean, these these university students, they produced the world's first exhibition on spaceflight in 1927. They formed the world's first society for spaceflight in 1924. Artists painted about spaceflight uh, movies were made about space flight in the 20s and the 30s. Uh, Russian. This is all in Russia. An enormous amount of novels, books, articles written about space in the 20s and the 30s, much more so than anywhere else in the world. And this is one of the sort of mysteries that I think historians are trying to unpack: why did this happen suddenly in the 20s in Russia? Uh, it sort of dies away after a while, but it really sets the stage for a kind of a long foundation of Russian culture just being absorbed in space flight. So.
0: Why do you think that?
1: Why do I think? Well, right after the revolution, and you must remember the revolution in 1917, the Russian Communist Revolution, to us um, it may seem kind of. We know what came after 70 years of communism and repression and totalitarianism, but at the time it was a time of hope for many Russians. And so when you have a time of extreme hope, there's also an explosion of utopian dreaming. People start to dream of what's not possible. And there are always crackpots on the fringe who really dream beyond even what is acceptable to be dreamt. So I think in that sort of cultural milieu, you have people who are just coming up with the most crazy nutcase ideas. And at the time, spaceflight was a totally off-the-wall idea. But it was acceptable because, hey, we just had the revolution. Uh, Anything's possible. Anything's possible. So why not spaceflight? I think that sort of explains some of it.
0: And in that sort of... Same vein, you have this sort of genre of Soviet science fiction where people go into space and incite Marxist revolutions.
1: Right, yeah. Uh, They made a movie, for example, called Ailita, which is a wonderful, brilliant movie. Um, It was made in 1924, actually predates Fritz Lang's Metropolis, which is a very modernist movie. But Aylita uh, is a silent movie about a a Russian soldier and uh, worker who go off to Mars to incite a revolution, and uh, overthrow the queen of Mars, whose name is Aelita. And this was a, you know, it was allegorical, obviously, in, in many ways. But it was a, also, you know, a hopeful movie to many Russians. You know, the Mars was, after all, red, and communism was associated with with red. So this was a also overt symbolism to them. And Aelita was a really successful movie. I mean, so many people showed up on the first day of the opening that the director couldn't even get into the movie theater and, of course, the movie featured, you know, lots of romance and bare flesh. So it, it uh, appealed to a certain de- young demographic, too. So, But, you know, that's sort of representative of what was going on at the time.
0: Romance between whom?
1: <laughs> romance between Aelita and the, the, the young man who goes to Mars to overthrow her. So wow. intrigue, yes.
0: It did seem to me as I was reading about this that... There was sort of this parallel thing going on which was that people did not want to talk about God when they were talking about space because right. it was really taboo but at the same time when they talked about the technology when they talked about conquering space mm-hmm. they were really talking about it in this very religious way
1: oh absolutely that's a very uh, good observation in the sense that technology itself became their religion and uh, and this is also part of the whole the whole ethos of the Russian Revolution which is progress and very futuristic and Russians really adopted that, that, and they, they speak of technology and science, and they still do as some sort of It has a religious connotation to it, um, especially uh, during the communist era when really there was no organized religion per se. They really latched onto science and, uh, or their version of uh, secularism as sort of the end and be all of everything. Yeah, very much so.
0: How did the Soviets, or how do they still maybe, use the idea of space travel to embody how they see themselves? And how do Americans do that?
1: Well, so, well, you know, the Soviet Union no longer exists. So uh, I, I would say the Russians probably see that as, 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 you know, they did a lot of amazing things during the Soviet era. They launched Sputnik. They launched Gagarin, who was the first man in space. They have a whole series of firsts. They launched this first space dog, Laika. They're very proud of what they've done. They now mm-hmm. see Russia as sort of a defanged superpower. Nobody really cares what Russia does or says nowadays. So I think they see this. The space exploration as as still a, a place where Russia can be great, and still reassert and revisit that kind of greatness they had in the '60s. For America, space is is what does spaceflight mean? I would say not much. Um, for most people, spaceflight means not nothing. For some people, yes. I mean, there's always NASA. You hear NASA has there's always background information about NASA you hear about, but the only time you really hear about NASA is there's something terrible has gone wrong like a shuttle explodes, or less occasionally you, you might hear something about some Mars probe or something. But most people, I would guess, of this generation do not care much about space. Having said that, I don't think they're opposed to it. In the American ethos, space still has a lot of cachet. And you know, if you go to some, some of these space conventions and space communities, you'll see... They talk about space with such an amazing fervor. And they equate spaceflight with the, the frontier thesis, which is that, you know, we came to the new world and we're gonna conquer the United States. And we did it. And they see space as the next frontier. Space, a final frontier. Of course the parallels are that when they conquered North America, there were actually people here. But, you know, they overlook some of these differences and really see parallels that just as Lewis and Clark did it, we can do it in space. So America, uh, I think Americans have a much more, uh, at least the, the sort of space enthusiasts have a much more, they have a strong attachment to the historical parallels very much. So,
0: Do modern day Russians still really see this as a point of national pride? Oh,
1: absolutely. Yeah, I, I much more so. You know, I was in Russia in January and February and... It's just amazing to see young kids talk about space in a way that you would never see Americans talk about space. There, it's really in them, and uh, in a way that is—it's background noise everywhere. You know, space everybody knows Karlov's name. You know, I—I I was staying at a at an apartment, and the the landlady came up and I, she asked me what I was doing here. I was like, well, I was, I'm presenting a paper on Russian on the Russian space program, and she just launched into, oh, I know about Tsiolkovsky and Karlov and this and that. I was like, wow, you know. She's, um, you know, she's just a landlady. And so there's a common kind of currency of spaceflight in Russia that's much more so than here. I mean, you might ask somebody on the street, you know, do you know the name of an astronaut? I I doubt anybody would. But in Russia, everybody would know at least a few cosmonauts. So it's, it's, it's a very powerful. It has a lot of cachet in Russia, yeah.
0: Why, do you think?
1: Well, I think. It's a point of pride. It's one of the few things that you can still be proud of of, from the communist times. There's not much to be proud of. I mean, you know, they had the gulag. That's not much to be proud of. They had a lot of, you know, there are things from the communist time you can be proud of. You know, I'm not diminishing many of the achievements, um, industrial or technological or scientific or even cultural, you know, the Bolshoi theater, etc. But. Nowadays, people latch to, I think, space flight as something that was truly and impartially great about the Soviet times. You know, they mention Yuri Gagarin in hushed tones. They talk about Sputnik as if it's th- the one more greatest thing. And and Sergei Korolev, the father um, of the Russian space program, who designed and launched Sputnik or was the head of the organization that did that, he's remembered in um, you know Vladimir Putin gave his daughter a medal in January because it was the 100th birthday of her father so it's a, it's a national thing i think but it ha- I think it has to do with reclaiming russia's greatness
0: this is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and wfuv.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Just after the show this morning at Cityscape with George Bodarchy. That's this morning at 7:30 on WFUV. But first we're talking today on Fordham Conversations about the Soviet roots of space flight. My guest is Fordham professor and author Asif Siddiqui. Let's return to our conversation so it's 1957 and mm-hmm. Sputnik lunches, and that actually prompts the American government to invest really heavily oh, in yeah. education, which I thought was fascinating what was was there anything going on with American spaceflight before then or was there just absolutely no plan to do it?
1: Well there were plans there were plans to um, and there were a few little projects here and there but Sputnik was an amazing shock you know it's uh, some historians call it a technological Pearl Harbor I mean it was unimaginable that the Soviet Union would be first in space it was unimaginable and so because this was a nation after all of you know potato farmers and tractors so it's it's just to really triumph in such a high technology area was unimaginable a lot, of, a lot of people didn't even believe that they they did it and so but once you saw the actual satellite up in the sky leaving traces i mean people were forced to believe there was a lot of talk at the time about the the night actually Sputnik was launched leave it to beaver the first episode was shown, and uh, I think that was symptomatic, or some people saw that as symptomatic, of an American populace which just becomes sort of placid. And you know, we don't, we you know we have our two car garages and our picket fences and our suburbs. We don't really need to worry about these things, and that shook up a lot of people. And as you mentioned, uh, the government invested heavily in education, especially in the sciences, and uh, many of our parents' generation, I think, benefited from that. They also created NASA because of Sputnik. They created an organization called ARPA, uh, which was indirectly, re- uh, ultimately responsible for creating the internet. So there, there's a lot of repercussions to Sputnik that are, you know, clearly um, there. Um, in terms of what Americans had plans before that, there were, as I said, there were a few he- things here and there, but nothing, including a spy satellite to spy on the Soviet Union. But all these things were really pushed on a higher footing immediately after.
0: And part of the reason for that was because uh, the American government was concerned about the arms race, right?
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, the major concern was if you can launch a, you know, a metal ball into Earth orbit, that means that you can, you know, replace the metal ball with a bomb and drop it on the United States. The United States had felt so invulnerable after the war. I mean, who's going to come and bomb the U.S.? This thing really changes that whole notion, and uh, people were genuinely scared. That the Russian rocket would fly over and and they could have done that. I mean, theoretically, but the the real the reality of the situation was, was that America was much 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 more powerful than, than the Soviet Union at that time. But the perception was what was more important. The perception that the communists were coming created a scare. Uh, but the American missile force was just it just it was it dwarfed the Russian missile missile force.
0: Now, because of the timing of your work, you have been able to take advantage of Soviet archival materials that were not available before. Tell me about that
1: yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, the forthcoming book is based completely on archival material in the Russian archives, and I was one of the first, if not the first, in many cases to to really go out there and dig through the archives since the fall of communism, an enormous amount of information has become available. So by the time I got into grad school, you know, I, I basically learned Russian and uh decided that uh, it would be a great wonderful project to tell the story based on the actual archival materials. So um hopefully I'll be able to do justice to that story because you know it's it's one thing to, to tell the story from secondary sources uh, but it's quite another to actually go to the source of it. So it was it was a really wonderful experience going through the archives and seeing stuff that nobody had seen and that kind of experience was great.
0: And this is information that really wasn't available before a lot of it. Were there any really big surprises?
1: <laughs> well, uh, the surprises are usually very small things you'll notice. Um, you know, I found letters from, for example, Karalev when he was in the Gulag that he wrote to his mother um, or to his wife. You know, these are things that you you sit in an archive and you realize nobody's seen, the, seen this thing for 50 years. And you're holding it in your hand, and it's a it's a letter of desperation from somebody who's in a labor camp. So those kinds of revelations are really important because it puts everything into perspective. That you're not necessarily dealing with some abstraction at that point. You're actually dealing with real people with real lives. So, you know, in terms of big revelations, oh, there was a you know a great thing that there was a cover up and those kinds of things. There were a few of those things. The history of the Soviet space program is just a panorama. It's an amazing story, um, I think so anyway. There's just so much tragedy, so much adversity to overcome. So many of those stories are in, in the book. But I for me the more important and revelatory parts were really the personal touches. You have to find a letter from somebody to his girlfriend, you know, that was lost or uh, forever lost and or never even delivered to the girlfriend. You know, those kinds of things are interesting, especially when, if you consider the state of the communist system.
0: Now, this is all very neat and interesting. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, are there reasons that people should care about this today?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, um, you know, as I sort of alluded to in the, at the beginning, uh, I think people should care about... Well, you know, I care about it. I can explain why I care about it. Um, you know, I'm interested in ways in which people can achieve certain uh, significant things when the cards are stacked against them. And in the Soviet system, uh, I think I saw stories that appealed to that kind of notion. I think it's important for us to recognize that there are people who really were dedicated to particular causes and who really single-mindedly pursued those causes despite being knocked down and uh, really having obstacles set in their path. I also think it's important for us to recognize that there are other ways to do things. There's not one way to do something really grand and fantastic. And the Soviet system really, for better or for worse, uh, illustrates that. And I think what I'm trying to do with my project is really to... To maybe, if somebody picks up the book, to, to realize that there's a whole world out there where, you know, a set of people managed to do something that was so extraordinary that it actually represented our whole planet. It's you know, it may seem like a Russian story, but ultimately, a thousand years from now, I'm not sure anybody will remember the Soviet Union, but they might remember Sputnik because it's the first time we ever went into space.
0: Well, uh, no Sputnik, no internet. <laughs> um, also, Siddiqui thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much.
0: That was also Siddiqui. Siddiqui is an assistant professor of history at Fordham. He's the author of several books about the space program, including the forthcoming The Red Rocket's Glare, Soviet Imaginations, and The Birth of Sputnik. If you missed part of the show, or if you'd like to hear it again, you can download our podcast at wfuv.org. You can also hear the show in our audio archives, also at our website. If you have any comments or questions about the show, you can email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. We would, of course, love to hear from you. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. Producing the show this week with help from John Stanford, I am Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening, and have a wonderful weekend. WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.